You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the show where we take a wander around the week in Apple, Apple News, Reviews, Technology, Associated Products and all sorts of other things that catch our eye. This is another episode of The Essential Apple Podcast. Hello listeners and welcome to this very special extra bonus episode of The Essential Apple. And I am joined, I might say I am privileged and honoured to be joined by Ben Baharin. Hello, Ben. Thank you for coming on. Hey, yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's not a problem. Um, there's a sort of a, a little tale as to how you ended up here, which I will tell the listeners. Um, people who've listened to this show for a, a, a fair while may know that I had your father, Tim, on um, probably a couple of years ago. And um, the story behind that is I, I listen to Tech Pinions, obviously, quite a lot. Not every single episode, uh, you know, some things don't interest me, but I nearly always listen to it because it's a good show. I really do appreciate it. And it, it, I love the way that you, um, you know, you and Carolina and Bob and sometimes your dad um, talk about, you know, what it is you do and what, what it is you're uh, looking at in the industry. But talk about it in a way that's not overly technical on the whole. It's it's good for the common man, you know, the interested amateur, shall I say. But anyway, this particular episode, um, your father, Tim, was on and he had a very squeaky chair. And every time Bob or whoever else was on said, uh, what do you think, Tim? <laughs> he had this terribly creaky chair and it would go, eh, eh, eh. obviously he was leaning <laughs> forwards towards the mic to speak. And you would hear this terrible. Yeah. E -e -e -e. So <laughs> after after the episode, I, I kind of sent a feedback and I said, yeah, great episode as ever. But Tim's really squeaky chair was really distracting. And I actually had to listen to the episode in like three sections. And mm. <laughs> so Tim um, kind of wrote back to me and said, oh, thanks for the input. And I'm sorry about the squeaky chair. And then I kind of cheekily said to him, well, you know, would you mind coming on my podcast? And, you know, I understand if you if you don't have the time. And he said, yes, I'll come on the thing. So then he came he came on my podcast. And as we were setting up, uh, like we were just before uh, we started the show, I said to him, I hope you've not got that squeaky chair, Tim. And he said, I don't think so. And then he obviously leaned forward to the mic and he went, ee, ee. <laughs> and I said, oh, really, really? You know, it's like, you can't have that squeaky chair. And he actually went, oh, sorry, I'll go and change it. And he went away and fetched another chair. But um, it kind of, you know, that, that was still, a, it was a great show. And that was very funny. We both found that highly amusing. And kind of off the back of that, uh, sometime later, I asked uh, Carolina because, um, me and her had been interacting through Twitter and I, I said, oh, you know, I know it's a bit cheeky, but would you come on my show? And she's been on, I don't know, two, three times now. And um, nice. yeah, and, and she's always a pleasure to have on, obviously, uh, lovely lady. 
And uh, so I kind of cheekily asked her if she'd uh, ask you to come on because I'm trying to fill my bingo card now, Ben. <laughs> I'm trying to get the nice. tech opinions. I'm, you know, I've, now I've only got to get Bob O'Donnell to come on and I've filled the bingo card for the tech opinions crew. There you go. <laughs> there we go. There you go. I, I'm sure he will. He's a nice guy and he, he's big into radio. He He did radio in college, so he's got that vibe. So I'm sure he'll be happy to come on. Well, that would be lovely. At some point in the future, I will ask uh, I'll ask Bob to come on, and then I can tell everybody I filled my bingo card. Um, but as go. I say, it's a it's a fabulous honour to have you on, and I know you're a busy man. And um, before we go too much further, um, I, I wondered for those who haven't um, listened to this show as long as you know uh, before, when they've heard Tim or Carolina come on, just explain exactly what it is you do as an industry analyst yeah yeah so you know one of the things i think a lot of people especially if they pay attention to twitter media um and especially apple in particular you know they, they hear a lot of the analyst tag get thrown around uh there's there's two types of analysts there's financial analysts these are the people on the wall street side that make stock calls and write out notes for investors in big banks. And then there's industry analysts, which is sort of the bucket that I fall into. Uh, we both have very different jobs, even though we might have some overlaps in terms of the company that we look at, the markets that we look at, underlying business financials, things like that. Um, but, but our job is to stay uh, a little bit more high level macro views, both on industries, companies, trends, um, categories we cover. So like, for example, I look at not just Apple, but I look at semiconductors as an industry. I looked at computers, mobility at large, um, e-commerce, startups, all this stuff sort of falls under under things that that, that I keep an eye on. And, and generally, we're, we're a bit broad in our coverage and we can go deep in, in specific areas. Um, but the industry comes to us for macro th themes, macro trends, um, trying to understand a little bit more about the markets that they're getting into. And so we we look more at the markets themselves and users as a function of those markets and obviously the companies. Um, but our spotlight is not on sort of the financial side, uh, just nitty gritty of finances and whatnot, the things that financial analysts uh, tend to do. So it lets us have a little bit wider of a lens, um, a little bit more bigger picture, longer term sorts of sorts of thinking. Um, but ultimately, in the, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're outsiders who study the industry as a whole and we sort of help educate our clients on, you know, market trends, um, you know, anything that, that they're of interest to based on kind of what our, our, our purview is for uh, for research. Excellent. I mean, I um, I was thinking about this last night because I was thinking, what am I going to, you know, ask Ben about? What am I going to say? And I kind of thought to myself, you know, how how would you describe what Ben does? And it, it came to me that to some uh, degree, you know, other than, you know, rather than financial analysts who um, I must admit on this podcast and quite a lot of tech podcasts, we kind of mock quite a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we like to say, you know, oh, you know, Apple is doomed. You know, they haven't, you know, last year they didn't release a 5G phone, therefore they're doomed. It's it's all terrible. Their shares yeah. are going to crash and burn. And we, we tend yes, to laugh yes. at that. You know, we tend to laugh at that thing because it tends to be very short term, you know, financial yeah. uh, views. But I, I thought, well, actually, if you asked me to describe what um, creative strat uh, strategies and um, uh, Bob's company, you know, uh, technology research do, I suppose I would try and say you're kind of feet 
futurists, but with your feet on the ground, as it were. You know, you're trying to. Mm. Would you say that that's yeah. kind of correct? You're yeah. trying to predict no, I mean, where things are going, but without correct. getting too yeah. carried away, as it were. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the 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 lens in which we have, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I could talk about things that I think might happen in in ten years, but the industry comes to us mostly for the next two ish or so years. Um, you know, that that's rubber meets the road. Somebody's building a product, they're launching a product, and they just want to know, you know, what's around the corner, what are consumers interested in, where are pain points with customers. And and that's usually a little bit more of a one to two year type of thing, both from market impact as well as trends. Um, but but yeah, I mean, we, we we have the luxury of being able to look a little farther out and hope and, and help those companies that we work with or that we provide reports to or do research for um, a little bit more on sort of anticipating the market within a shorter time frame, not necessarily a ten year time frame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that's. Um... Well, I can't remember the exact quote, but I remember reading somewhere somebody said something along the lines of, you know, most people massively overestimate what can be achieved in the next two years and massively underestimate what can be achieved in the next 10. Um, yeah. So I think that might have been a futurist who was saying that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's true, you know, because I follow the tech blogs and I follow your work and, and people like uh, Benedict Evans and yeah. uh, uh, what's, what's the other Ben? There's another, there's a third ben Thompson. one. Ben, yeah, Thompson, ben Thompson, yeah. 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 And, and you know, I, I kind of follow their Twitters and whatnot and I like to... I'm an, you know, I'm an interested amateur. I have no special insider knowledge or whatever. I'm just a consumer. Um, but I guess I follow more, you know, in-depth tech blogs and whatnot than quote unquote the man on the Clapham omnibus. But um, I find it interesting, and I always enjoy, you know, uh, Ben Thompson and and Benedict Evans. Um, and I always thought it was a, 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 a sad affair that your your three Bens, B cubed, never um, <laughs> never made it past a few episodes. But there we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, we had a we had a good run. It was a, a good podcast. I think you know every everybody had a little bit of a different idea of where they wanted to go with their personal brands. And Benedict and I kept that up for probably another year and a half, two years. Um, but yeah, we had we had Ben Thompson for probably six to eight episodes, something like that, and then Stratechery was off and running. <laughs> well, there you go. Such so is life, I guess. You know, he's got got his own, uh, you know, his own brand to build and his own thing to do. You know, yeah. these things don't always pan out as we hope, do they? Sometimes, you know, and I'm sure, you know, we're all very pleased for him that he did very well out of it. But um, yeah, no, I mean, he's uh, he's built a great brand. So and, and we're still friends. So it worked out. Well, that's that's good, isn't it? That's good. And that, that's, you know, nice to hear. I think sometimes um, people get the impression from the media or sometimes occasionally, you know, disagreements on Twitter or whatever that, you know, that people are at each other's throats. And um, I don't think that's true often. You know, I, yeah. I follow people like uh, Jean-Louis Gasset and... Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he's... Um, and uh, Stephen Sinofsky is a... You know, I often, yeah. you know, mention some of his work on the show because, you know, he's a man who obviously worked for Microsoft and worked on Windows and has a lot of insight. And 
I find often he's, despite what a lot of people think, he's not that heavily Microsoft biased. You know, he often writes things about Apple, which I find are very perspicacious, you know. Um, yep. There yep. we go. Um, so, obviously, Creative Strategies is the company you work for, and I guess was founded by your dad. Is that is that how that one works? Um, uh, he, he ended up uh, buying the company from... Uh, an investment group that purchased it from the original founders. The the original founders actually started the company in 1969, which is just a couple of day a couple of years after IDC was started, actually. Okay. And um, and those two gentlemen went on to form DataQuest, which uh, eventually ended up being acquired by Gartner. So it was a very very small world in those days. Uh, but Business International came in and, and actually purchased Creative Strategies when it was maybe a, a dozen people still working for it in the early 80s. And he and three of the other um, partners bought it back uh, in the early 90s. And then they sort of retired or moved on and he was sort of he was sort of left with it. So uh, <laughs> it's his company and and now it's kind of the the communal company between he and I and, and Carolina trying to to grow it. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it was it was his and now we're trying to grow it into something bigger. Um, but it's got a long, long history, actually, in the industry. A lot of early people in computing um, were well aware. Interesting, interesting fact. I don't know if he had mentioned um but uh, Trip Hawkins, who graduated from Stanford with a specialized degree in graphics and gaming, um, he's that he was one of the uh, one of the original founders of uh, of Electronic Arts. Anyway, he um, he interned with us and wrote a paper on video games and gaming, and it caught the eye of Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs ended up bringing him in uh, while he was an intern at Creative Strategies. And had a very very long conversation. I, I know Trip well still, and we've 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 talked about this. It was it was heated. Uh, he stood his ground, stated his opinion, and Steve ended up hiring him on the spot. And uh, and he grew a lot of the graphics business for Apple early on before he left to start Electronic Arts. Um, and so he he and I always talk about how he got his his his, his start at Creative Strategies and the paper that he wrote. You know, got got across Steve's desk, and it was all history from there. <laughs> it it's amazing actually how when you kind of dig into the history of you know the whole tech world it some of us forget that relatively speaking you know it's a new industry even if you say okay let's go back to you know let's say 1950 and say the the tech world started then um you know, and you can debate where and when the, the kind of modern consumer electronics tech industry really originated. I think most people would probably say with the birth of the transistor, but um, it's amazing how you find out it is actually a very small and sometimes incestuous world. Um, but then you find out the same about a lot of industries. If you dig, if you are actually interested and you dig into, I don't know, any well, I guess pretty much any industry. I mean, not so much globally, but for example, uh, you know, I work in uh, print design. You know, uh, a local print company, and print is surprisingly um, incestuous. You know, mm. at, at least within local areas, everybody tends to know at least of pretty much everybody else. And um, I've always found that a fascinating thing when you read into the history of the you know, the modern tech world, um, yeah. like the thing that, um, 
the one that always springs to my mind is the fact that people kind of seem to think that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates hated each other. And yeah. um, all that, you know, if you dig far enough beyond the media headlines, you will find stories. I mean, there's a, a famous picture of them at some industry dinner where they're sitting together laughing. And uh, I always thought, what, you know, what would I imagine that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are laughing at? And I thought, yeah, actually, they're sitting at this industry dinner. And in my mind, what they're laughing at is you do realize that between us two, we've got the whole of this business sewn up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this yes. image that we hate each other is a brilliant ploy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just yeah. just keeps all the plebs believing we're we're enemies. Well, actually, we're just sitting here eating fine steaks and laughing our heads off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, th I think that I think that was probably the All Things D conference uh, for Wall Street Journal. But I mean, you're totally right. Back in those days, the industry was extremely small. We we have a plaque from um, a local publication that has uh, it, it lists the hundred most powerful people in Silicon Valley. And my dad happens to be on it. But I mean, it's literally like, you know, Steve is there, Bill is there, mm. a handful of people from Apple are there, um, Larry Ellison. I mean, it's an incredibly small group. And that was the size of the industry. I mean, it yeah. was just not, it was not enormous at, no. at the executive level and they all knew each other. Yeah. And they, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you remember this. And uh, for many years, Larry Ellison um, of Oracle, of course, um, used to go on very much about thin clients. I mean, I don't know if you remember that, yeah. particularly that period. I do. Yeah. And um, yeah. he had this big image of, of thin clients and people would laugh at him to a large extent, I think, at that time. And as time has gone on, although thin clients haven't evolved in the way that he might have envisaged right at that point. I always thought effectively he was just a little bit ahead of his time because if you look at something like the Chromebook, is that not in effect a, th a thin client? Would you not say? It, you it, know? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, and 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 people bring this up. I mean, you're exactly right about the analogy. People bring this up all of the time when they talk about you know the mainframe in the in the cloud or in uh, in the internet mainframe and then little terminals and that's exactly what what uh what chrome chromebooks are and, and many people have continually brought up that analogy like you know this is larry ellison's vision of the the terminal computer that you take with you in, in a chromebook because it's fully cloud-based so it's like that vision just keeps recycling never really yeah. happened and now you have the closest thing to it and Chromebooks are, you know, moderately slowly growing, but but taking off in some markets. But yeah, I, mean, I think if you had to point to one thing that's the closest reality to that vision, it would be it would be a Chromebook. Yeah, I, and I always found that like because um, my first experience of computing when I was about seventeen was um, it, it wouldn't even really be considered a computing club in those days, but we had. Um, we had a group of, I don't know, five or six of us who were kind of vaguely interested in basic and a bit of programming and not something I ever pursued, possibly to my <laughs> detriment, but there you go. Um, and a, a teacher allowed us access to what at that time was considered very high tech, which was a teletype terminal to the local college mainframe. And um, we actually had a, a true modem um, in the sense that you actually had to pick up an old-fashioned telephone, dial the number, 
open this thing like a briefcase which was full of foam into which you jammed the handset and shut the lid <laughs> so that it would uh, and you know do a full on actual modulation demodulation to talk to the mainframe and uh, we would upload mm. these little you know I don't know basic programs of a few hundred I think my friend Ben uh, designed a, a program which he called Mystic Cave which ran to several thousand lines of code in which you would it would be like go north you know you meet you meet a you know an evil dwarf and it was like use an axe use an axe use a spear you know you're out of spears use an axe like you have killed the evil dwarf you win you know so many gold pieces where do you wish to go now it was a very simple program but yeah you know, um and that machine actually if you wanted to uh preserve something after you typed it all in laboriously by hand on the mechanical keyboard um you would print it out as a roll of punched tape <laughs> <laughs> i mean this this thing was huge you know it was yeah. enormous thing but um and obviously that is a thin client and people moved away from that towards the desktop pc and that was you know larry's vision was that maybe and in some ways i i believe the cloud is it's not presenting thin clients in the way that larry envisions it other than the chromebook but now we have this thing where you know a huge amount of stuff is done in the cloud and now people are talking about edge computing so bringing stuff back out again so it like so many things it seems to be a um how would you describe that? But I, I suppose like a, a di not exactly a dichotomy. Uh, um, so it's like it's on a piece of elastic. You know, the fad goes towards centralising and then back out again. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, there's you talk about centralised and decentralised computing. Yes, um, yes. I, I mean, I mean, it hasn't quite been on sort of a cycle. I mean, there's it's generally always been centralized. I mean, people talk about it now. Uh, when, when you look at the idea of a distributed computer, what happens in the cloud? I mean, we're still not there yet. No, we're well, not, I think no. we'll definitely get get somewhere. But it's it's been more talked about as a cycle than an actual sort of cycle. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. the typical frame is, is I, distributed I was versus centralized. I was thinking more uh, rather than um, an actual cycle. I guess I was thinking more about... Um, you know, fashionable trends in what people talk about. People talk a lot about moving everything to the cloud. Then people talk a lot about moving everything to the edge. People talk about thin clients, fat clients. Um, you know, do do you want a big desktop on your, you know, on your desk that where you have all local storage and everything belongs to you? Or do you start hiving stuff off into, you know, software as a service and and um, cloud storage? And these, these things, they're almost like fashion fads, don't you think? As, you know, particularly mm. with consumers rather than within the industry. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I would say it's not so much as a fad as it is just, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will, right? People like to talk about their future and often, you know, like especially in science fiction, right? The idea, and, and that was obviously something that was thrown in science fiction as well, right? That there's a, a smart computer somewhere out there and it's just feeding all these little endpoints. Mm. Um, you know, they, those typically tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies because people then get an idea and they're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go invent that. Yeah, actually. So it's... At <laughs> I was going to say, actually, you're right there. On, on the self-fulfilling prophecy, I, I very much believe in that because if you look to Japan, 
um, who obviously have a huge history of, you know, giant robots and, you know, their sci-fi is full of all this kind of giant robots and all that kind of thing. Um, the people who grew up with that, who are now engineers, for no good reason whatsoever, want to build giant robots or transformers or whatever that actually work. <laughs> and it's a bit like those of us who grew up with Star Trek or whatever, you know, we want to make communicators and um, pads and, and all those things. So, yeah, I think what you grew up believing might be possible in the future are the things that you strive to make to some extent. Yeah, no, for for sure. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Everybody, they see that and they say, oh, that's cool. I want to go do it. And whether it happens right away, it's something that just piques the eye, the ears of scientists and, you know, and, and they'll put energy into side projects from companies that engineer. So it's kind of like whatever you saw in science fiction, even if now seems weird, someday it's probably going to happen in some capacity. It's just, it tends to always be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. So, uh, Ben, obviously yesterday, let's move on a bit. Yesterday was uh, the Apple earnings, and I don't want to spend too long on this because every, every you know everybody tears this down to the end yeah, degree. Sure. Um, but sure. I mean, the big takeaways are surprisingly, Apple did surprisingly well. Um, their revenues were up, I believe, a billion dollars above, um, well, at least, you know, financial analysts projections, not yours, obviously, but, um, they seem to have, you know, sold more of pretty much everything. As we like to say on this show, uh, Apple seemed to have taken all the monies again, um, there was a, a big dip in iPhone sales in, um, I mean, iPhone sales were down generally, but because obviously the iPhone 12 has been delayed into this quarter rather than where it traditionally comes out in mid-September. So they took a hit there. Um, yep. And the only thing of um, real surprise to me, I suppose, was that they seem to have taken a big hit in China. Um, yeah. Now, some people are saying that's political. Some people are saying it's um, because the Chinese really love to have, you know, the new big shiny, you know, the big shiny um, latest thing and not having the iPhone 12 out in that quarter made, you know, made a big difference in China. What's your what's your kind of take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a there was a number of things that they um, that they impacted. I mean, honestly, it's it's not something that's of concern to me. I, I think China actually, I think you got to know two things. They're never the largest uh, segment for Apple these last two quarters. Um, China is typically a cycle that's very heavy on the new iPhones. So, say the the next four or five months of uh, of sales after a launch. So one would expect that China is going to ramp up now that new phones are launched and then well into the first quarter. I mean, China still has Singles Day. That's going to happen. Lots of iPhones sold on Singles Day, which is November 11th. Um, and then obviously around Chinese New Year when, when gifting has happened. So the the ramp up is up to now. Um, it's generally never the, the strongest quarter, like I said. Um, and the other interesting thing is, you know, I've seen reports about China, you know, we were always just completely dumbfounded how China had the fastest refresh cycle of really any country. I mean, I think they were averaging 18 to 19 months. So that's not even a full two years that that Chinese uh, consumers were waiting to get phones. And over the last six to seven months, that is now stretched to a little over two years. 
And that's that's a material difference when you think about the number of, of units that are sold when you've got that many people in a in a landmass uh, buying phones on a on a regular basis that they move from you know 18 months to to maybe 23 24 months of a, of a refresh cycle, and so all, all all that does is really I think point out that a strong cycle had been brewing in China. Lots of vendors were down. It wasn't just wasn't just Apple. The market was down. Um, in China for obvious reasons. I mean, obviously they had, they had COVID early on, so this is a weird year uh, to compare. But I, I think the the strength of iPhone in China remains strong, especially around 5G, when that's a country that uh, has much more mature and robust 5G than anyone, any other country out there. Um, these are these are the areas where I think Apple has set the stage for a really strong quarter. The the delay, you know, di- didn't really help. I think the delay was a little bit of a of a hurt because um, it just has it had consumers waiting even longer uh, to get those phones in the quarter. Um, but every note I've seen, all the research I've seen, expects a pretty strong rebound um, into China throughout the rest of this quarter, and particularly into uh, into into the, the the fiscal first or second quarter for Apple, the March quarter, which is when Chinese New Year hits as well. So um, not 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 a big deal in my opinion. And and again, these aren't lost sales. Anything you see, I've, I've tried to make this point many times, um, anything you see about people saying, well, they're not going to sell as many phones in the quarter because of the delays, et cetera. These are not lost sales. They're delayed sales. No, that's so exactly you, you it. You have to. Yeah. And I think you have to look at Apple as a fiscal year sales cycle now, not a quarterly cycle. Apple used to be very, very quarterly. And all the financial analysts was like, it's got to be big this quarter. You've got to look at it now in the year as in totality. And that's where I think people are saying for the whole fiscal year of, of 21, Apple's going to grow iPhone units year over year and probably for the last two years, um, sell more than they've sold in the past two or three years. But that's on a yearly basis. you know. And so I always encourage, don't get so worked up in the quarter. Look at this over the next year. And I think when you do that, you're going to see tremendous growth in iPhones for all regions um, it, when, on, a, on an annual basis. Yeah, I've, I've always been and and i guess this is part of the reason that uh, that some of us in the in the podcasting you know particularly the kind of apple or tech related uh podcasting industry laugh at you know financial analysts because they seem so focused on the the next quarter or the next two quarters and um as you see in the show notes uh i've i've linked both six colors and mac stories who always produce a, a, a stunning array of charts um <laughs> yeah. you know they, they really do uh you know for the average man like me yeah kind of showing what all these numbers mean in relation to you know maybe the last four or five years and the general trend yeah. and what's up and what's down and and um they're very careful and if you look at their charts they always show you, you know that there's there's one big quarter and then two quieter quarters and then a sort of another not as big as the biggest quarter but you know it, it's just and if you look at the chart you can see it and they draw a line you know they draw the average line through and it's just climbing you know it's not climbing exponentially but it's climbing in a way i think anybody who you know if you you know if you've got shares in apple or you know maybe if it's samsung or whatever but if you if you're looking at that graph and it's going steadily upwards and it's climbing i don't know 10 15 20% per annum that's a good graph you know, that's the fact that I don't know, you know, every September there's a huge cycle, you know, or a huge boost in 
sales and then it drops off for two quarters and then goes up again. That's If you measure it like that, it's like, oh, it's a disaster. But if you look at it over, as you say, over a, an annual uh, average, this is this is what you need to look at. You know, it's no good... Um, even in you know, even in my print company, we all we all know at work that, um, for example, January is usually a, you know December January um, is generally uh, pretty flat. There's usually a spike uh, just before Christmas, which is usually late November, early December, and then work tails off. And you could say from mid December to mid January, you know, the work is is low. And then at the end of January, when the you know the post New Year hangovers wear off, everybody starts starts buying again. And you can't measure, um, you know, you cannot take that section of a of a year's income as representative as as a trend. You have to measure the whole year. The same as you know for most companies in the summer, say August. Um, you know, certainly in Western Europe, around August, everybody goes on holiday. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody will tell you that sort of late July to late August, sales will be down. You know, that was it probably many companies will tell you that's their worst worst sales month of the year. Um, that's in my trade. Obviously, in, in retail, people will tell you that, I don't know, November to... Uh, mid-January is the biggest sales, you know, that's the, <laughs> I mean, the whole Black Friday thing is supposed to tell you that apparently, you know, the holiday period um, is where many retailers actually make most of their money. I'm sure that's not true if you're in groceries, but if you're in, um, you know, many other sectors, apparently in retail, that's where most of the money comes. Uh, not being in, you know, not being par, um you know, not being, uh, having actual figures for these things. I have to go on what people tell me, but you know, it, it's always about trends. I, I'm with you, Ben. I really believe things are about trends. You cannot look at a quarter or two quarters and make some kind of long-term prediction based on that. That's, that's hokey. <laughs> Very yeah, hokey. For indeed. sure. Um, yeah. And that's why I think, you know, you look at the, 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 the Apple business as a whole and, and you see how services and some other products have really offset what was once an extremely seasonal product cycle, which came from iPod and iPhone. And, you know, I just, I've always encouraged the, those on the financial side and others to just really understand, you know, you've got to look at the annual fiscal as a, as one big year of growth, not just like what's happening on a quarter basis, because they're, they are starting to move away from pure seasonality, which is good for them in a, in a, in a lot of ways. And of course, um, obviously their growth in services, um, which Tim, you know, uh, we like to call him uncle Tim on this podcast as uncle Tim, you know, is, is saying, you know, services is an ever growing slice of their revenue. And of course, um, like the subscription model, you know, that Microsoft and many other uh, software vendors have adopted is uh, good for them because it evens out their their income. You know, um, if they've got however many millions or, you know, of subscribers to um, Apple Music, Apple TV Plus, whatever, that's that's a steady what we in print would call bread and butter income. That that's a baseline fixed income. As long as you keep growing that, then you know, a large an ever growing proportion of your income is steady rather than um cyclical based around product launches and so on. 
Um, and I'm pretty sure that, that that's what Tim and Apple's team are working towards, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you think that that's part of well, their strategy? That's, and, and, and that's definitely been... I think they're a commentary, right? I mean, I think they want to, they, they want to have what's what, what I'm now sort of saying, you know, they're moving away from uh, this idea of, well, we just have, you know, we're, it's, it's one part of a three-legged stool to, to, to now what I'm sort of saying, it's all the spokes of the wheel. Mm. And when you understand some spokes might be bigger than others, yes, but they're, they're all related. The, the, the point here is you have many, many, many diversified revenue streams that's helping feed your company it is the strongest thing place to be because you're not reliant on one or two businesses, which could be subject to a pandemic, which could be subject to a bad economy. And so having all of these different ways that you can make money is just the smartest way to run your business. And I think Apple truly understands this is why they keep saying if, if this one business was spun out, it would be a fortune 100. Like they're, yeah. they're trying to say we have many, many strong businesses, not just one. Our business as a whole is interlinked, which is why I like the spokes of a wheel analogy. But but there there's there isn't one of those that sort of just drives, you know, the 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 soul of the company going forward. And and that's where you have to realize then, okay, well, if that's the case, then there's more businesses or more business lines of revenue that they can create going forward. They're not trying to be a one, two, or three pick tr trick pony. They actually want to build this robust ecosystem of revenue. And from a from a financial side, that's really good because it means that you know you're gonna have a, a a much bigger, a much healthier, and a business that can allow you can to, to reinvest in staying competitive and developing new products. Yeah. I mean I've um you know I've I I can't say I've been a huge fan of Apple TV Plus. Um not because it's not a good service. Um, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, you know, me and my co-host. And we're all still in the, mm, would I pay for this? You know, it's, and I think that's where Apple One is targeted to kind of say, well, if you like Apple Music and you're not really sure if Apple TV is worth paying for, but if we chuck in a couple of other things, would you pay you know, $15, $20. And I think a lot of people will. Um, not everyone. Um, obviously, Apple at the moment have, have bunged everybody an extra three months of um, Apple TV+. Plus. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's designed to um, encourage people to, you know, make more of that, especially as they appear to be uh, ramping up to add some more compelling content. Um, I mean... You know, as a group on this podcast, we always said, nice as the content on Apple TV Plus is, it's still not enough. Um, there's there's not enough to keep everybody happy, is what I said uh, in the last show. You know, Netflix and Amazon Prime have everything from cheap schlock to, you know, Academy-winning blockbusters. Apple TV has some really nice content, but are you prepared to pay you know, your, your $5 a month for the few shows that you're interested in. Now, that's not to say they're not good shows, but in, in any um, spread of content, nothing, you know, not everything is going to appeal to everybody. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that um, the Apple One bundles are, uh, you know, designed to draw people in because, well, you know, I like the Apple Music, I'm not sure about the Apple TV, but I suppose it's only a couple of dollars more if I 
take into account my iCloud storage or whatever, and and therefore you know it's a draw. Do do you, do you kind of feel that's where they're going with that? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't know how much of it is the draw versus it might just be the I hate to use this word, but but the throwaway, you know, the kind of thing that you're not necessarily subscribing to, but you get as as a result. And, and again, you're you're happy about it because, you know, the, I, I don't think at least for right now, they're really not making a uh, uh, a point about um, catalog. I think they're talking just trying to say. We've just got uh, a, a good collection of exceptionally high quality shows. Um, and that's that's really the focus that they're on. Now, in five or six years, they might have a tremendous archive, right? And oh, of course. you've yeah. got f- f- four seasons of Ted Lasso and you've got, you know, any number of seasons of, of, of other interesting content. It becomes more valuable. But for, but for right now, I think people are subscribing to like the bundle, which I, ex- I actually expect to do really, really well. Um, they're subscribing for storage because they're running out of photos on their phones. Yeah. They're subscribing to music. You know, they're subscribing to those tangible things that they care about on an everyday basis. And some of the other stuff just kind of comes along for the ride and it's worth it for you to get the whole bundle than just, you know what I mean? Like just one or two things. So um, I, I think for right now, movie uh, uh, Apple TV Plus is kind of just the come along for the ride sort yeah, of service that- versus the driver. Yes, but that's exactly like that's I said, e- I, I think their strategy remains extremely clear about high quality, like the bar of the content, I think, is so much higher. And, and I've had conversations with folks in Eddie's group about this, like they they talk about Netflix or Amazon Prime as saying, well, it's great that they have a lot of originals, but some of them are really terrible. And they they try to make the point that even if it doesn't apply to you, it is a high quality production show that who it did apply to finds it a plus material oh and, yeah and that's that's their goal and and that's why i keep saying like in five or six years it's going to be really interesting it's a lot like hbo in my opinion even though some stuff in my, to, that hbo is is like i said not relevant to me people of those shows find it exceptionally high quality that's H- hbo minus the movies that they license the hbo originals is kind of my analogy for thinking about apple tv but in a couple of years, it's going to be it's going to have a significantly significant and quality archive. I I think I I agree with you there. I mean, um, I was talking on the last show about um how many Netflix original shows I've been watching. Um, there's a really um I found really quite a compelling feature on Netflix, whereas that they've they've got a lot of um they're creating a lot of Netflix original content. And I know we're going slightly off the point, but they're creating a lot of Netflix original content, much of which is not actually filmed originally in English language. Um, But they're offering you the option to watch these shows. I watched a show called uh, Go to the Lake, um, which was filmed is a Russian production. It's a Netflix original. It's filmed in Russian. But you can go, I I would like this in English, please. So you get a dubbed version. It's dubbed, professionally dubbed, um, by the same company because actually when you come to an end of an episode it will it will start scrolling down saying French, you know, French actors are you know, German actors are, Spanish actors are, or voice actors. Um but I've watched um a variety of what would in the past have been dubbed as um, you know, foreign language uh material and you'd have um had to watch them subtitled but netflix offer them you know in a whole bunch of languages you know that you can have brazilian portuguese and spanish and whatever and um some of those 
have been, you know, to me, exceptionally good. I have also mm-hmm. watched a couple and watched like one episode and gone, this is, you know, this doesn't interest me in the least. It's awful. Right. But that doesn't right. mean it's awful to everybody. Um, you know, ones I've watched and enjoyed is great. And um, I, this is, I, I think what I'm trying to say is if Apple, I don't know if they offer that on Apple TV Plus because I haven't checked. But if they want to go worldwide, I think they, and I know we, we're kind of drifting off the point because at the moment, Apple TV Plus is a fairly small slice of their business. But I think like Apple Music, they could grow it very big. And Netflix have done yes. this clever thing with offering you, yeah, you can watch a Spanish show and we'll dub it into English. I watched, I mentioned the right. other day, I watched this show, which was originally German. And it's about the Romans and the Teutonic tribes fighting in um, over a particular forest. It's a historical, well-known battle. But in the show, the Romans all speak in Latin, right? So even in the original show, they speak in Latin and have subtitles. And then uh, all the tribes are obviously, I guess, speaking in German because it's a German show. I watched it in, you know, dubbed into English. But the Romans still speak in Latin. They're not dubbed. They speak in Latin, literally, with subtitles, and then the German tribes all speak, obviously in the dubbed version, in English. And I think that's an incredibly clever manoeuvre from Netflix. And, um, you know, I think that's something that Apple would not do bad to emulate, to um, spread their shows, as it were. Yeah, and and honestly, I'm you know I'm not saying that they're not their their goal is to not grow. I, I just think they're taking uh, and they have the luxury of doing so a a five you know seven eight year oh, view yes. on this. And so I mean, I think at uh, the you know, moment, I, I, at the moment, I think you're right, Ben. They they're using it as a well, what in retail you called a lost leader, wouldn't you? They they're throwing yeah. it out there as something for now, you right for now for now they're throwing yeah. it out there and Correct. saying here's some really nice stuff you can have. And yeah, maybe not prepared to pay for it. But if we chucked it in with some storage and Apple Music, which, you know, everybody knows is, you know, really successful. And then to to bring it in, obviously, the, the $99 HomePod Mini, I mean, you know, is that a, is that hitting it out of the park or what? I really yeah, think that... I, I... <laughs> so you... I, I would certainly be curious on on your take on this because Apple Apple did make a point about um, you know your neck of the woods and some other parts of Europe being particularly fond of small phones. That that's not a sentiment we have here in the United States. Most people really like big phones. Uh, I'm not saying it's not going to sell here, but um, but I no, I'm talking about the the, the HomePod, not the not the oh the HomePod Mini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I caught you wrong. The, no, 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 it's fine. Sure. I understand. Actually, we I'm not sure that we're particularly keen on small phones here. I don't know anybody here who carries a small phone. Most people here would go for the, certainly the people I know, all on the whole, go for the biggest phone they can lay their hands on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> certainly, people, certainly people my age, because, you know, we're all sort of over 50, and it's like the bigger the screen, the easier it is on my poor old eyes, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, um, for sure. But, but yeah, um, HomePod, HomePod Mini is, 
man, it is, it's going to do really well, we think. I mean, one of the biggest complaints we saw, and we did research on HomePod right, right off the bat. I'm not sure if you saw that or participated in it, but uh, pretty much everybody that we surveyed felt like while it was a quality product, this the, this, the price point was too high. Um, yeah. And it, almost everybody said one of the things they wanted to see in the future. I mean, I think it was like 80% of our, our survey respondents said a lower priced HomePod mini. Yeah, um, this is a great, great strategy for them to expand I, their presence in the home. I think that I think you probably agree with me. I mean, ninety nine dollars is for Apple, particularly a very aggressive price point. You know, it's very yes, rare for correct, Apple to correct. bring something down to that level. Um, I'm pretty sure um, that they have pitched it because um, obviously Amazon have re- released a new um, improved echo which is also a sphere by the way interestingly um we, you know they've re- released a new echo in a sphere shape which is selling uh, here in the uk at least is selling for 90 pounds which is probably 99 dollars in the us um they've released a new dot which is also you know the same shape as the um the home pod mini it's 50 pounds so that's probably 60 dollars um so really i felt that you know pricing the home pod mini at 99 dollars is really striking into the heart of the kind of echo and google home market um i i thought probably as you've just said um the home pod itself technically brilliant as it might be and i i know people have them and some people who've bought pairs um and say that they are wonderful but for most of us i think we look at them and we go i mean i i don't know what the starting price price was now you can probably pick one up for three hundred dollars ish but yeah yeah uh, considering that when they released that sonos countered by selling you can buy a pair of sonos speakers for the same price as one home pod i don't think certainly you know like you when i did a quick survey of the you know the essential apple listeners their response was much the same as as your research which is like it sounds lovely um as a product not sounds as in we've been to listen to one but it you know it, it it's got all the right tech specs and whatnot, but yeah you know three hundred and fifty dollars, that's seven hundred dollars for a pair, that's a lot of money. Um, and I can go and get a Sonos or whatever. And if you're not an audiophile, you know, to hell with it. I'll go and buy an Echo. You know, which is because I'll be honest, an awful lot of us admit to the fact that we use our Echoes or Echo Dots in the same way as you know, we used to use a transistor radio. We just turn it on and go, you know, smart speaker, play me something. And we, if we're in the kitchen cooking or we're in the living room doing something else, do we need super hi-fi quality? Probably not, because even if we had it, it would be destroyed by the sounds of the stove and the kids yeah. and the dog barking. And, you know, I, I don't know. So I think the HomePod Mini is a very aggressive strike and i'm i think it's very much pitched to sell also to sell the apple music because you know you can buy one of these for 99 dollars and subscribe to apple music and you know things what three inches across or something it's it's 
not much bigger than one of those cheap Bluetooth speakers you can pick up at the supermarket. Um, yeah. Sure, you have yeah. to plug it in, but you can carry it around with you in your rucksack or whatever, I guess, and plug it in wherever you are, as long as you've got Wi-Fi, I guess, yeah. and, and have access yeah. to all your music. I, I can see that being yeah. a very compelling product. I can imagine my daughters, for example, who are, you know, 16 and 20, being very much taken with that as an idea. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that I'm I'm really interested to see, and and you're right about the price point. I mean, to be honest with you, we didn't even have $99 on our radar. I mean, I think we thought $129 would be the lowest they they (laughs) they came into. One one forty nine was rumored quite a bit, which again, right when you, the HomePod started at three forty nine, still sells over three hundred as a as a regular price point. Dropping it quite that much was was interesting, but where where it gets interesting to me is you know you, you have a, a a lot of Amazon smart speakers in, in homes. Like I'm sure it's the tr- it's the, it's true of, of of UK. It's true of here in in oh, yeah. US. For us, it's you know I, I'm in. What what I am curious to see is, and I would venture a guess that a good number of those Amazon smart speaker owners are also iPhone owners. And so will you willingly leave the investments that you've made on Echo smart speakers and start jumping into Apple's smart speaker ecosystem? Or are they going to stick with Amazon? And for Apple, I actually think this will be really telling because this is this is a battle for the home. I mean, that's essentially what this smarter or a, or a talking computer with a speaker uh, in, in your home becomes is, is it's part of the thing that you interact with. You start to depend on um, you're right about services that can be tied to it. And so I'm, I'm generally interested if Apple can turn the trend with again, an aggressively priced product, but not as cheap as, as echoes, but turn the trend in their favor and start to gain some share back from, from Amazon because that would be really big for for their ecosystem. And again, I think these are iPhone customers, so they have a chance. But but I have no idea. You know, I just don't know what loyalty looks like to the Amazon Echo ecosystem. And that's that's one thing I'm particularly curious about. I I think personally, and as an Apple fan, and a, you know, obviously as the host of a show called Essential Apple, Apple is my focus but obviously we we do keep an eye on what's going on and you know me and my co-hosts some of us have um echoes some of us have google homes and various other products i think for a lot of iphone owners their investment in the amazon echo ecosphere is a few dots um Many of which, I'd certainly the, the listeners of this show will say, well, I picked up a dot because it was $25 or $20 on, you know, Black Friday or Prime Day. Um, that's not a huge investment. I mean, a lot of people pay more than that for a smart bulb. Um, so I think amongst people who are in the Apple, Apple ecosphere, um, and let's face it, you don't actually have to ditch your 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 echo uh you know related products you just have to say would i prefer to move more of my stuff towards apple the the one um thing i i mean there are two articles i've linked in the um in the show notes uh which is um where are they i've forgotten now um there were anyway there was there was a thing i think it's um it, it's just that the investment in I think it might have been your father's piece, actually. Um, 
which is why PC vendors are watching Apple closely, um, which is on tech opinions. Yeah. But um, the the investment in the Amazon Echo ecosphere amongst Apple users tends to be more around the fact that you can buy a dot for nothing. Yeah, you can buy even the better quality Echo for a fraction of the price of a HomePod. Um, Alexa has more skills. Alexa apparently, you know, is more flexible than Siri. Um, but for people in the Apple ecosphere, the right product at the right price, which pulls in all the dev- all the other Apple stuff they already have, their phone, their iPad, their watch, their T- Apple TV, could, you know, could be the killer move. Um, if... If I had one thing, if I could talk to Tim Cook for one minute, and I don't know what you think about this, it would be like, Siri's biggest failing is you say, um, hey, Apple device, and you have to wait, I don't know, that half a second, a second, before it goes, ding, and then you say, <laughs> please do X, Y, Z for me, and then you have to wait for it to go, doo-doo, and then you wait again, and then it says, okay, I'm going to do that. Um, What many people in my Slack and obviously, you know, related to the podcast have said to me, the difference is with the, you know, a lady, is you just go, a lady do this, and it happens. I understand why Apple have that delay, but it's a friction point for users, and it's something that once you get used to using the Echo, people find annoying. Um, and I don't know what Apple can do about that, to be honest. But if they could remove that friction point, I think um, Siri would, you know, step up probably two levels in most people's estimation. Yeah, I mean, and don't get me, I'm I'm always one of Siri's harshest critics. Um, and, and I don't think that's on the cusp of changing anytime soon, despite some of the recent changes to uh, syntax and fact database, et cetera. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm with you on just the ease of, of Echo. And, and I agree, you don't have to have, it's not one or the other, but I do think, I do think you'll see a little bit of ecosystems clash um, when you do have a number of different smart speakers. Like we have HomePods, we have um, a Google, a couple of Google Homes, and then we've got some Echoes. And it's it's off, you know, it's awfully difficult to remember, like, okay, which one am I going to talk to right now? What yeah. do I want to do? Yeah, which uh, one does the lights? I, which I, one I, does the TV? Which one does yeah, the curtains? Yeah. The, the, this is why I I do think there will be a settling on the home kind of computer ecosystem that you want, and there that again I think is Apple's advantage that if they've got your pocket, then there seems to be no reason why they can't also get other rooms in your house with a neutral smart speaker like a like a HomePod and of uh, course, mini but uh, yeah you know again no i was going to say the only the the only other um if i might say you know light at the end of the tunnel possibly is the fact that obviously amazon and google and apple and uh, i don't know however many other manufacturers now have um moved to form this or i believe it's called the connected home over ip or chip yeah um which at least you know, brings the hope that, you know, you can go out in much as the same as, you know, uh, works with, you know, works with Microsoft Windows or, you know, certified for Apple or whatever means that you could go out and you can buy a, I don't know, a smart bulb 
or a smart whatever, and it's going to have this badge on it that says, you know, chip approved, which means you should be able to connect it regardless of whether you're using Google or Apple or um, Amazon or whatever. You know, it's going to be a kind of approved to work with your smart home, whatever you use. And um, I'm I'm kind of hoping that that's going to bring some kind of clarity because obviously lots of people who talk to me and some other podcasts I, you know, talk to, they always say the same. You know, I went out and I bought this light from Ikea and I got it home and, you know, it. I tried to connect it and it like it, it wanted to connect to, I don't know, Google, but I didn't really want it to be used with Google. I'd rather it was on Amazon. And, and at the moment, it's a mess. We all know it's it's an absolute horrible mess and far more complicated than it ought to be. And so I think a lot of us are hoping this kind of chip alliance is going to help. But how much it's going to help, I don't know. Um, well, I think what, what matters is that, you know, if you're going to buy a, a, a bulb or a lock or a camera or et cetera, right, that you go to, you know, whatever store, whatever retailer or online and it's supported with HomeKit or with your 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 Apple ecosystem, then then that's a plus. And that, yeah, that's what I hope the rest of this does. Because if, if you look at that and you say, oh, Google supported, Amazon supported, yet this is the lock I want because that's what all my friends told me to get and Apple is not, then you're not like you're you're gonna you're gonna get what you want and then you're gonna say, okay, well then I need to be in, you know, Echo Amazon's ecosystem or have an Echo, etc. So it's this is just about bringing parity to the experience of the broad ecosystem of connected home products so that it's not just on you know Amazon's or Google's but that it's on on, on Apple's as well via HomeKit. So if that happens, I think it just strengthens every bit of Apple's home, you know, pro- ambitions for the home which oh, I think now yeah. is largely centered around HomePod Mini. Yeah, I I very much agree with you. Right. Um well, time's ticking on Ben, so um there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. We might run out of time. I mean, you know, if you run out of time, feel free to tell me that you've run out of time, by the way. Don't, you know, feel that you've got sticky. If you've got another meeting or something, feel free to tell me so. But um, obviously, um, Apple Silicon, big, yeah. big thing, big coming thing. Um, my view at the minute is everybody seems to be taking this as a foregone conclusion that it's going to be fabulous, it's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread, blah, 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 blah. Now, you know, I wouldn't want to bet my money against Apple on this, but, and I know they've done it before, I literally, I have been in the Apple, uh, you know, ecosphere since the 68K days, so I went from, you know, 030 to, uh, you know, 603 PowerPC to, you know, um, Intel Core 2 Duo and so on, you know, and i5 and i7 and all that. So I have seen them go through this before and I know they can handle it. But a lot of people seem to be putting this down as if it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to be fabulous. Um, And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to knock it, but like the iPhone, you know, is this not actually quite a big gamble for, for Apple? What's your feeling about that? I mean, I I think they can carry it off. Don't get me don't get me wrong. I really think they can. But you know, if something went horribly wrong 
would it not be <laughs> a major disaster for Apple? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple a couple of things. Um, the uh, obviously day one, right? With when they release an ARM based Mac, it's it's not going to be the only Mac you can buy. So there there'll still be Intel products. There'll still be products for pros. Um, what what I think we've got to you know look at is his is Apple's track record for silicon has been very good. Um, I, you know, I, I personally think that software that's that's running what will just you know state the x86 um, emulation might not be good in the first generation. Um, but I say that with the caveat of you've got many iOS apps that are running on you know Apple's ARM-based silicon that I think will translate very well to a Mac. Many of those are creativity and productivity software from. You know, again, you've got Office, you've got Adobe, you've got a, a range of the sort of big names out there, as well as the whole indie development environment that's going to bring a breadth and depth of of apps to the Mac ecosystem like we've never seen before. Um, and I think those will all do fine. Now, you know, I don't think there's going to be anything wrong with the the broader success of of ARM based apps that run on iPad and iPhone and bringing those to the desktop. Um, I do, like I said, I do think that there'll be a little bit of a, of a kludgy experience in emulation day one. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think it's hard pressed given their track record, given the amount of, of developers who are comfortable to arm that are going to bring, you know, tens of thousands or more apps to, to the Mac. Um, th- those are going to be, I think, perfectly good, if not stellar experiences, um, on, uh, on the Mac platform. And, and, you know, and for me, it, I look at, you know, what does day one look for them? And then what is day, you know, year, year two look for them, uh, as they look to transition a broad product line, um, toward, toward Macs. But, you know, the, the thing that's always stuck out to me is there's so much stuff that Apple does around security, biometrics, um, just custom tuning for their hardware that they've never been able to do for the Mac. And you see it on iPhone, you see it on iPad. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see the way that they'll design these chips, um, you know, bring Face ID to the Mac for the first time, I think will happen with this, really bring in really good secure, security and biometric protocols, connectivity, possibly the best battery life you've ever seen or heard in a, in a notebook. Um, so I think there will be a tremendous amount of pros for the few cons being that emulation for x86 software may not may not be great. Um, but I think the people who will need those pro applications that run, again, just the kind of stuff that's that's native to Intel today, um, that's a small group of people. Uh, so I, I don't think that's going to going to really matter much day one. They'll still use their Intel Max. In in two years is kind of where I'm I'm curious to see if they could fully truly ditch Intel even in the high end, um, or or if they're still going to need to support some x86 applications in the in the pro pro lineups uh, of Macs. But but I think like I said their track record's good. I think they've got software that'll that'll easily come over to the Mac and to a, a really really good experience. And then there's just lots of stuff they can do feature wise that you could never do before that I think people will, I think people will, will, will be quite excited about, uh, about this product and all the things that can do that most computers, including most Macs have not been able to do before. And uh, yeah, I, I actually, I agree with you, Ben. I was kind of playing devil's advocate a bit there because I mean, as I say, I've been through all the transitions and um, you know, we had 
as I say, you know, X, uh, was it? Oh, you know, uh, 68k to uh, the PowerPC and then on to the uh, x86. And Apple managed that fantastically well every single time. And, um, and then, of course, actually, there was also in between the one that many people forget, which was the classic Mac environment onto um, OS X, which was a shift from, you know, one set of code to a Unix-based code. And in the same way, I'll be honest, I remember, um, I can't remember what manic, uh, magazine it was, but when OS X, I don't know, reached like 10.2 or something, and like you know, broke actually broke mainstream as a, a an OS that you might actually want to run, because I'll be honest, you know, ten point zero and ten point one were, well, you know, they were for the those who are out there on the edge. You know, ten point two was when, um, was when you know OS ten kind of went mainstream. Um, I remember there being a headline saying OS ten will bring the Unix nerds to the Mac. And um, although it wasn't maybe 100% true, it was amazing how much extra stuff suddenly became available to Mac users. Not necessarily, um, initially at first, not necessarily through the easiest of means. You might have to mess around with homebrew and, and various other ways to get these you know, Linux or Unix stuff to work on your Mac. But in a fairly short order, uh, a whole slew of extra stuff appeared on the Mac because they moved to a, you know, a Nix core. Um, and in the same way, I guess, I'm, I'm seeing that this transition, if if it works out, and I see no reason why it shouldn't, by the way, because, don't get me wrong, on this show we have consistently said Look at how amazingly fast Apple have taken an you know an ARM license for chips and have gone you know A4, A5, A6, bloody whatever, and now they're on A14, and they have got a world class you know silicon team. We know that they have a hugely talented um, team. Probably that you know. I don't know how many people are in their silicon team. It's probably, you know, 10, 20 people. But they obviously have assembled a team of some of the top silicon, you know, builders because their their chips are consistently amazing. Um, So I really think that, you know, personally, I'm really looking forward to this. But I'm, I'm saying at the same time, if something went horribly wrong, would it be a disaster? But like you, I think actually Apple could fall back to Intel because, you know, they're talking about a two or three year transition. So, if, you know, if it really went horribly badly, it would they would they would not just abandon it. But I think like many things that a- Apple have done in the past that don't necessarily pan out, they would just kind of quietly let it fade away. Um, I don't think that's what's going to happen, by the way. But um, I'm just interested to get your take on it, you know. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 pretty excited. I mean, I think you know, I, I I think like I said, there's going to be a lot of benefits that come to it. Um, I mean, I think you know things you pointed out about just the trust in the team that they've developed. I think 
you know, for Apple to move forward here, they have to have a pretty high degree of confidence that it will be executed. The developer environment will come along with them and that they'll be able to compete on performance with Intel. I, I just don't think that they would move forward on this time frame until they knew all those boxes could get checked. So, you know, there, there's still a chance that it could go, you know, really bad. Like you said, I, I think it's a small chance, um, but there's always that possibility. And, you know, I, I can tell you Intel, you know, Intel has a very interesting benchmarking team that just benchmarks competitors' products and tries to, to throw them under the bus. And, and I think this is going to get a very ugly battle in <laughs> benchmarking between uh, between Apple and Intel, which is going to be fascinating <laughs> to watch. Um, remember, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, remember the flamed bunnies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and this is the kind of thing that I think Apple's geared up for. You know, again, they're, they're not going to pick a fight with with Intel and 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 try to come come straight after them in this regard if they don't think they can win and and win handily. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, to be honest with you, a lot of the stuff that that Intel will not play fair here when it comes to benchmarking, and uh, and Apple's Apple's going to have 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 to get I think on all pull out all the stops when it comes to their counter marketing and the benchmarks that they'll throw out in the public. So mm. it's going to be it's, going to be a wild ride there but you know again I'm, I'm i'm pretty confident that this will go over well it'll be a, a really good experience of a product but like you said there, there's always a chance that uh, that it might not work out um which i think would be unfortunate given apple's you know kind of long long-term ambitions um but but i have a high degree of confidence i have that, i have a high degree of work, so. i have a high degree of faith ben let's put it that way i'm pretty sure like you that apple do not they do not chuck the dice, as it were, unless they feel they're loaded in their favour. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um. Ag- agreed. Uh, agreed. I'm. I'm very much. Um. Yep. I. I I'm very much. Uh. On board with that, and I. I know you're running out of time, Ben. So I tell you what. Um. I. I I'd like to. Uh. Just mention that. Um. Your dad had a piece on tech pinions which is why pc vendors are watching max sales closely which kind of addresses some of those things we were just talking about um what i'll say is it as you're running out of time i was going to ask you a little bit about um the possibility of apple glasses but um mm-hmm. we're out of time so we won't worry about that now um i'm sure you have plenty of thoughts on that but um what we normally do now at, uh, what I call the wrap up is where I give you a chance to just mention all the places the listeners can find your work, and then we'll uh, we'll sign off if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, easy, easiest way to 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 sort of follow me is Twitter. Uh, I do a lot of a lot of tweeting on on industry stuff. It's the most frequent sort of outlet and where uh, I'm, I'm voicing stuff. Obviously, I write um, at uh, at techpinions.com mostly for subscribers but every now and then I do I do public pieces when I think the topic is uh is big enough um you know creative strategies my company there'll there'll be more 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 content that goes there on a on a semi regular basis and then obviously we have the tech pinions podcast which I'm not on all the time I'm on sometimes um but yeah I mean twitter's twitter's the easiest way to sort of see everything that's that's top of mind to me and and I link a lot to stuff I've written 
um, or podcasts and things like that. So I, I always say tw- Twitter is probably the best the best fire hose to connect to if you want to <laughs> get m- more stuff from me. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. Um, and of course, um, I believe the uh, Creative Strategies also has its own Twitter feed, does it not? It it does. I mean, we don't we don't again publish a ton through there. Um, but yeah, no. But if you're interested, opinions, just myself. That, we, yeah. yeah. Yep. 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 Those are all the sources. So okay. Well, that, that's lovely, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, yeah. Totally. Glad honor. I could come on. Thanks for having me. No, oh, fantastic. Uh, uh, loved having you. Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. For, you know, giving us the time to come our, you know, relatively small podcast. And uh, love to your dad. And uh, say hi to Carolina for me. And um, I'll have her on soon, I'm sure. And uh, hopefully if you can twist uh, Bob O'Donnell's arm, I can feel my <laughs> I can feel my bingo card. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. I'll put a, put a bug in his ear as well. All right. Fantastic. Well, I'll let you go. And... Uh, Thank you so very much for coming on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Ben. Cheers, mate. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, I, of course, can be found on the Twitters as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. The show tweets out uh, on Essential Apple. All the stuff's over at EssentialApple.com. Don't forget to go and check it out. Mark's been putting stuff up there. Um... Thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you for all the people who support the show in all sorts of ways. As we always say, that doesn't have to be financial, but it's lovely if you send us money. Um, But you can retweet our stuff. You can uh, batter your friends about the head until they, uh, you know, till they give in and listen to our rubbish uh, and all the rest. So um, until next week, cheers. You've been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. And I'd like to say if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both Patreon and the Pinecast Tips Jar where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show. Uh, Or even if you're really keen, you could set up a recurring payment. And thank you very, very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club Podcast, the Geekiest Show Ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh... Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I've forgotten. So why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcasts, and take a listen. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchotts, host of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. Every month I gather together a panel of Apple followers and we digest the month's Apple news. Our aim is to step back and take a 40,000-foot view of all things Apple. We're the perfect complement to the many great daily news shows out there. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie.
have been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you next time.